I remember as a child when I first sensed the power of the word why. Any of you who have been parents, do you remember when your children first sensed the power of the word why? Those three letters can transform parent-child interactions. When a parent says it's time to go to bed, a child old enough to invoke that simple question has a powerful ally. Why? Because if you don't go to bed, you'll be tired in the morning. Why? Because your body needs sleep to feel rested. Why? Because that's the way our bodies are. Why? Because that's how humans evolved. Why? That small word can quickly become tiresome. As many of you know, there are a few different ways of extricating yourself from such scenarios. For the exasperated parent or childcare worker, one option, of course, is the classic, because I said so. That's why. For, more, for the more philosophically inclined parent who doesn't mind perplexing young children, an existential response might be to shrug your shoulders and say, I don't know, why not? And there's always the industrious response of, I'll take you to the library tomorrow and you can find out for yourself or ask, trap a librarian in a corner. Or perhaps for the 21st century parent, you can, you can say to your child, here's my iPad, Google it. <laughs> Setting aside these tricks of parental jujitsu, uh, I do remember feeling a shift inside myself as a child when I first asked that second follow-up question of why, instead of simply accepting the initial answer. You need to eat your vegetables. Why? Because they're good for you. Why? Because your body needs many different foods to stay healthy. Why? Now, at some point, I moved from sensing the power of the word why to realizing that there's essentially no end to the number of times that the word why could be asked. Some of us have even carried this relentless habit into adulthood in some form or another. And there are advantages to having a healthy skepticism. For instance, the so-called common sense answer to the question of what should the U.S. be doing about our growing national debt is cut spending. But regular readers of various magazines and journals, um, papers like the New York Times, know that columnist um, Paul Krugman has for many months now been asking why? He thinks that cutting spending is precisely the wrong approach for saving the economy. But we'll have to save a sermon on the sequester for another, uh, another day. Similarly, as we explored a few weeks ago, each year our denomination, the Unitarian Universalist Association, selects one book for all Unitarian Universalists to discuss as a common read. This year's selection is Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in an Age of Colorblindness. Alexander was not content to simply observe the high rates of mass incarceration in this country, especially among African-American males. She asked, why? Likewise, as we'll discuss in depth next Sunday, uh, questions of why are finally being asked widely about the carnage caused in our country each year from gun violence. Stepping back and asking why can expose that sometimes there really aren't good reasons for the way things are. And the question why can be more than just an annoying infinite regression. Asking why can unlock new perspectives that can potentially change the status quo. 
The Templeton Foundation is a philanthropic organization that funds research into asking the big questions of human purpose and ultimate reality. The sorts of big questions that you quickly reach if you really keep asking why. And their work in particular often brings science and religion into dialogue. One of their projects um, brought together a group of 12 leading thinkers and asked them to respond, as you heard earlier, in 500 words or less to the question, does the universe have a purpose? The Templeton Foundation then summarized their answers into short titles, and because they're succinct, I'll list all 12. In response to the question, does the universe have a purpose, respondents wrote, unlikely, very likely, yes, 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 certainly, no, no, not sure, perhaps, indeed, and I hope so. <laughs> For me, one of the most compelling of those 12 was the one you heard earlier from Neil deGrasse Tyson. I appreciate the honesty of his answer, I'm not sure. Concerning all of our questions why, Tyson reminds us that humans were not around to ask these questions for 99.9999% of cosmic history. So again, if the purpose of the universe was to create humans, then the cosmos was embarrassingly inefficient about it. And he continued uh, that if a further purpose of the universe was to create a fertile cradle for life, then our cosmic environment has an odd way of showing it. Ecological devastation, volcanoes, climate change, all those reasons you heard earlier, and especially killer asteroids, have left 99.9% of all species extinct that have ever lived here on this planet. Jim Holt, the author of last year's best-selling book, Why Does the World Exist?, spent time reading through the work of philosophers throughout the ages who have wrestled with this question, as well as interviewing contemporary scientists, philosophers, and theologians who continue to ask questions like, does the universe have a purpose, and why is there something rather than nothing? And after all this research, Holt confesses that he reached a much different conclusion than the famous one reached by that early 18th century philosopher Leibniz, who called our universe the best of all possible worlds. In contrast, Holt says that the conclusion he has reached, at least for himself, is that the universe was created by a being who is 100% malevolent, but only 80% effective. Now, my worldview is not quite that, or I guess my cosmology is not quite that pessimistic. But when I first read Holt's quip that the universe is created by a being that's 100% malevolent but 80% effective, uh, I did find it jarring to consider that possibility. This perspective raises the question of the biases that have influenced how we respond to questions like, why does the universe exist? To recall um, deGrasse Tyson's sober conclusion to this question, he said, while I cannot claim to know for sure whether or not the universe has a purpose, as I see it, the case against it is strong and visible to anyone who sees the universe as it is rather than as they wish it were. Now, I spoke earlier about the inquisitive nature that leads many young children to ask why. Why? Why? For as long as the adult in the room can take the heat. And that question why, for the most part, is an earnest attempt to investigate the universe as it is. 
In contrast, Tyson's charge that some of us see the universe as they wish it to be reminds me of the beginning of Christopher Durang's 1980 play, Sister Mary Ignatius Explains It All. Has anybody seen that play? Anybody? All right. Very good. Some intrepid um, theater goers. In this scene, the adult is asking the infinite series of questions, not the child. Durang the playwright describes the protagonist, Sister Mary Ignatius, as dressed in an old-fashioned nun habit and of indeterminate age, though probably anywhere from 45 to a vigorous 65. Her charge, Thomas, is a sweet-faced, obedient boy of seven. He's dressed in a parochial schoolboy's uniform of gray dress pants, white shirt, uh, navy blue tie, navy blue blazer, and she begins, Thomas, who made you? And Thomas says, God made me, sister. Why did God make you? God made me to show forth God's goodness and to share with us God's happiness. And it continues on with question after question after question from the catechism. In a much more widely known story, the opening verses of the book of Genesis tell us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, if you read those verses carefully, you'll notice those verses are actually a lot more complicated than what you typically say here said, which is God created the universe out of nothing. According to Genesis, there's already a formless void in waters at the beginning of creation, but that's the beginning of a very long story of how people misread the Bible, and it's also a sermon for another day about how ancient Near Eastern creation myths influence one another. But my point is that stories such as God made me to show forth God's goodness and to share with us God's happiness or in the beginning God created heaven and the earth. These stories, would have, which have been so ubiquitous in human history, they can profoundly affect our ability to objectively respond to questions like why does the universe exist and does the universe have a purpose? Why is there something rather than nothing? These notions can predispose us to think that there was something before the universe came into being or existed. In contrast, if you talk to physicists and philosophers of science, some of them will tell you some mind-blowing possibilities such as this. It's tempting to imagine the Big Bang to be like the beginning of a concert. You're seated a while, fiddling with your program, and then suddenly, at time equals zero, the music starts. But the analogy is mistaken. Unlike the beginning of a concert, the singularity that was at the beginning of the universe is not an event in time. Rather, it is a temporal boundary or edge. There is no moment in time before t equals zero. So there was never a time when nothingness prevailed. And there was no coming into being, at least not a temporal one. Even though the universe is finite in age, it has always existed, if by always you mean all instants of time. Such mind-bending scenarios follow from Einstein's theory of relativity and the realization of how deeply interconnected space-time is. From another angle, consider that as wild as it is to try to conceive of the universe as is 14 billion years old and counting, that huge number is almost infinitesimally small, um, a small drop in the bucket compared to what it would mean to talk about the infinity of an internal universe. Sorry, that bug that's been crawling on the pulpit just crawled on me. Uh, it's the interdependent web of all existence. Uh, so that 
it's almost infinitesimally small compared to what it would mean to talk about the, an eternal universe. So 14 billion, still, still really small compared to an infinity. Indeed, just as physicists and philosophers speculate about the beginning of the universe, one theory about the end of the universe is that the 400 billion galaxies in the universe will continue to expand until approximately 2 trillion years from now, other galaxies will no longer be visible from our vantage point because all the galaxies are going away from each other. Now, of course, our vantage point 2 trillion years from now likely won't exist because our sun is predicted to burn out around 5 billion years from now. And all of this scientific, empirically-based speculation is a significantly different worldview than that of the, for example, 17th century Anglican archbishop who calculated um, in a reading of the Bible that our universe began 6,000 years ago on Sunday, October 23rd, 4004 BCE, to be precise. Uh, But we don't have to rewind time to the 1600s to find a radical shift in our conception of the universe. Consider that only a century ago, only one century ago, at the beginning of the 20th century, we had long since abandoned the idea that Earth was the center of the universe, but we still thought that our galaxy, the Milky Way, was the only galaxy in the entire universe. Whereas here, 100 years later, in the early 21st century, astrophysicists speculate that our galaxy may be merely one galaxy out of approximately 400 billion, 400 billion other galaxies. Not solar systems, galaxies. Moreover, our entire universe may be merely one of many other universes, a theory sometimes called the multiverse. Now, one reaction to the size of the universe is to despair about our insignificance as a species. But an equally legitimate response is exhilaration, that we're here. (laughs) There is something rather than nothing. And we have this life. We have this world. We have one another. We have all of that right here and right now. Rather than despair, my takeaway from the intellectual history of the universe is a mix of ongoing curiosity and epistemic humility. Epistemology is just a fancy philosophical word for the study of knowledge, what is and isn't possible for us to know, given the way our brains are shaped and the way the universe is. So epistemic humility is simply a chastened stance about what it is possible for us to know as a human species. Instead of Sister Mary explains it all, We confess both the impressiveness and the limitation of what it is possible to know about the universe from our finite human perspective. As one scientist famously said, not only is the universe stranger than we imagine, it's stranger than we can imagine. At the same time that the size and scope of the universe or multiverse um, humbles me, The intellectual history of cosmology fascinates and intrigues me about how much there is still to discover. Before Copernicus's work in the 16th century, we thought that Earth was the center of the universe. Before Darwin in the 19th century, we thought that humans were the center of creation. But instead of being a little lower than the angels, we came to see that we're just a little higher than the apes. And deeply part of the interdependent web of all existence, not hovering above it deeply part of the interdependent web. And as I said earlier, at the beginning of the 20th 20th century, we still thought that our Milky Way galaxy was the center of the universe. 
And assuming that we can find a way to live sustainably on this earth, this trajectory of decenterings and the expansion of knowledge leads me to think that there are likely many more mind-blowing paradigm shifts to come as science continues to advance. Perhaps there's even life out there somewhere on one of those four, in one of those 400 billion galaxies with some of the Earth-like planets. As one of my favorite quotes from the film Contact says, I'll tell you one thing about the universe. The universe is a pretty big place. It's bigger than anyone, anything anyone has ever dreamed of before. So if it's just us, it seems like an awfully big waste of space. And just as we continue to learn about how unbelievably wild and huge our universe is, I don't think that that dictum, that the universe is not only stranger than we imagine, but stranger than we can imagine, I don't think that applies only to the exterior world. The work of thinkers like Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung challenge us to consider that our interior, our subjective experience, and our sometimes spooky connection to one another, what um, quantum physicists call uh, a spooky action at a distance or quantum entanglement, that I think that that inner subjective world is is also not only stranger than we imagine, but stranger than we can imagine. And I'm deeply grateful that Unitarian Universalism encourages us to hold all these realities um, in intention from the first source of our direct experience to really put trust and value in what you know to be true because you've experienced it for yourself. To our other five sources, which span the best of the world's religions to the best of modern science. And that as we together as a movement seek to experiment with and explore where our UU principles and sources can lead us both out there in the universe and in here in our deepest self, I want to leave you with this quote from one of my favorite philosophers, Ludwig Wittgenstein, who said, don't think, but look and see. That's hard for you used to hear, don't think. We like to think. And in the abstract, it could seem sensible to think that our planet is the center of the universe, and that led us astray, thinking that led us astray for a long time. But Copernicus didn't just think. He took time to look and see that we're merely the third rock from the sun. In the abstract, it could seem sensible to think that our species is the pinnacle of creation. But Darwin didn't just think in the abstract. He took the time to look and see as a naturalist through intensive, detailed study of the Galapagos Islands that humans are just one species among many. Now, I have no intention, again, nor did Wittgenstein, of being anti-intellectual. At the same time, the tendency of some intellectuals to theorize in an ivory tower can undermine their work. We need more than abstract thinking about how we think the world is. We need to look and see to look and see what happens when our ideas about the world are tested in the crucible of reality. For example, in the abstract, as strange as it may sound to say so, it makes more sense, at least to me, to think that there would be nothing instead of something. Because nothing is a much simpler explanation than something. But as powerful as Occam's razor is, the logical rule that the simplest explanation is probably the correct one, The universe isn't simple. It's exceedingly, hyperbolically, unbelievably wild, huge, and complex. I mean, symbol would be one element, right? But look at the periodic table, and we keep adding things to it. That's not simple. Um, 
Not only is the universe stranger than we imagine, it's stranger than we can imagine. How amazing that we're here and conscious of this fragile existence. How incredible that there is something instead of nothing. How amazing that our entire solar system is merely on the edge of the humongous spiral galaxy known as the Milky Way that itself is merely one of perhaps 400 billion galaxies in the universe or multiverse. And that's only what we know now here in the early 21st century. Who knows what more we may discover about ourselves, this world, and one another. The sermon began with a reading from Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, Another much briefer quote attributed to him says, I'm driven by two main philosophies. No more today about the world than I knew yesterday and lessen the suffering of others. You'd be surprised how far that gets you. That philosophy is not a bad starting point for figuring out how to live as responsible, engaged citizens of this far-flung planet in our 14-point-billion-year-old universe. Who knows what path-breaking discoveries are yet to be made or are in the process of being made right now. Our current ways of thinking and living may someday reveal a better way that is more in touch with the nature of reality. In the meantime... Don't always just think. Don't be limited merely by what you're told that you, others, or the universe is like or has to be like. Look and see how you are, how the world is, how we all are together or could be together, which may be different than the limitations you've been told to believe. Give yourself permission to wonder. Why does the universe exist? Why is there something rather than nothing? Allow yourself to get back in touch with that childhood question. Why? Why? Why?